Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My name is Mark Boris, and I've teamed up with Stake, one of Australia's top investing platforms, to talk about going public. IPOs are exciting milestones that unlock new capital, draw more attention, and open up opportunities. But a lot happens before and after the trading bell rings, and it's not all glamour. Join me in candid conversations with prominent business leaders as we reveal all the ups and downs of getting a private company listed. With me today is Richard White. He's the CEO of WiseTech Global. WiseTech is an Australian tech success story and they provide leading logistics management software globally with offices in Australia, New Zealand, the Americas, Asia, Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. The company was listed on the ASX in 2016 under the ticker WTC, and you're about to hear all about how that transition went. So here's Richard White for Going Public. Richard White, welcome to Going Public, mate. Thank you very much. Now we've never met before. That's true. Because you are one of our, one of our very big emerging, great stories, uh, big emerging great stories when it comes to tech on a global scale. Mm. So I just want to say straight up, I feel quite honoured to have you sitting here across the table from me. I'm actually honoured to be here. Thank you. Now, Wise Tech. Just tell me first off, why is it called Wise Tech Global? I mean, global bit I get, tech bit I get. What's Wise? So there's a story here that starts when I founded the company in 1994. And I'd worked in logistics software a few years before that, building up what became WiseTech. The first name of the company was called Eagle Developments International. Eagle. Eagle Developments International. Eagle, because I had an association with a gentleman in New Zealand who his name was Paul Hawkins, and he had a product called Data Hawk, and I thought Eagle's better than Hawk, so Eagle. And then Data Developments was software development and international, just a word that sounded good. Uh, that name existed right through until uh, the company got into its second generation, that was 94 through to about 2006. We bought a company in Chicago as part of our global growth. We've always had some acquisition strategy running alongside the organic strategy. And that company had a product called CargoWise. And I didn't particularly like the name of the company because it was called Fountainhead, but the product I liked the name of. So in order to make it appear like the Americans had bought us, we called the company CargoWise EDI. EDI still made sense then because it was electronic data interchange. And so we had the name CargoWise. And the 
the interesting thing was that a lot of people thought we were a logistics company because Kagawa sounds very logisticsy, and so you could get about hundred requests a week for freight quotes. So by the time we went to 2011, I needed to explain to people three things. We are connected to this product called CargoWise, which, which we rebuilt completely and, and issued as a new product. We were a technology company and we were global. And that was partly to, to drive it towards a listing where I could explain the company properly. So WISE is CargoWise, tech, technology company, global. And very rare that Australian tech companies are global. So I was trying to make a clear message for the market. That was as simple as it gets. The decision making that you went through was strategic. In other words, you wanted to look like an American company had taken over you. We wrote the press release quite vaguely. So it, it, you could sort of read it either way. It's very strategic. Yes. These things are very strategic. Because nobody would think that an Australian company was a world leader yeah. until they were. Yeah. So the strategy there was to try and put your competency on a world scale by convincing Australians that this was an American deal. So it must be good. And must be bear, good. bear in mind that we weren't selling to Australians. By that stage, we'd sold much of the Australian market and we were really working in the US and Europe and we needed to have a brand that people trusted. And so it, it felt good for a first couple of years, but then it sort of inverted. We, we became the brand and it wasn't about the American nature of things. It was just the trust in the brand. Before you were listed on the ASX, how did you fund the business? By being profitable. Yep. On the very first year. Again, that was a strategic decision you made. It was probably more accidental than strategic at that time because I didn't even know how to raise money. I just knew how to run a good... But by the way, WiseTech was my fifth business. Fifth, yeah, right. Yeah, so I had enough money from the previous business that I had pretty good startup capital. So you had your own money to invest. Yeah, it, off, it was a pretty small amount. You know, it wasn't it wasn't millions by any yeah, means, yeah. but I had enough, and I had a lot of sweat equity because I built, I, I wrote all the original software myself up until '93, and then I hired my now CTO Brett, uh, and we together with Marie, who's my co-founder, and two other staff, basically built the company from the from our bootstraps. And I would go out and sell. I would do support. I would write code. Marie would keep the engineers working. And you say this quite. Um... Like you're riffing, it's like you're not a big deal. I'm like, well, what's your market cap now? Uh, 24 or 25 billion. Billion, okay, so right, that's that's pretty significant. Um, so what year we talk about that when you when you uh, and 90, 94. Okay, so not no, 93, in, 94. So you go back to 1994, um, that period, uh, it was a bit of a weird period in Australia. Um, Paul Keating, I think, was a prime minister, and uh, we we're in we just the, had the recession we had to have, correct? That was a recession we had to have, and uh, where interest rates were like seven, eight percent or something like that. And um, and Keating lost the 96 election, and uh, and um, the liberals got in, and the world changed a bit. Um, so it was a pretty tough period. It was. Your, your background, were you, a, you said you were developing the software. Were you a software developer, electrical engineer? What, what's the deal? I started as a musician. A musician? Yeah. Well, that's got a lot to do with software. Well, it, surprisingly, it's the same sort of mathematically logical process. I, I was trained and I had a- As a musician? Talent. Yeah. Yep. I, I wanted to play in rock bands. I wanted to be a rock star. But, you well, know, you are now. In the well, yeah, markets. But, uh, very indirect course, but I got there eventually. I think um, what I realized quite quickly, my father was an engineer and I spent a lot of time in his factory after school and he taught me a lot of things about electricity and physics and so forth. And my grandparents were both entrepreneurial and I, I worked in the catering, uh, the function center, originally washing dishes with a big 
huge dishwashing machine at the age of 12. At your grandparents' business? Yeah, it's like right next to where I lived. Yep. So I just walked across the, the pathway to my grandparents. And I would work on a Saturday and Friday night, earn some amount of money that I can't remember, and I don't know what I did with the money, but I remember feeling incredibly proud to be paid. And I, I think they did that quite deliberately to encourage me to be entrepreneurial. They taught me a lot of things. So I had this odd but very powerful mix. My mother was very salesy, and she taught me a lot about sales and relationships and communications. I'm so glad you I, said that. I'm glad you said that. Sales is about relationships and communications. Hmm. That's what sales is. Yes, absolutely. You can't make someone buy something, but you can get them to like you a lot and build a relationship and keep communicating, and if they want the product, they'll buy from you. And the only other thing you can add to that is you can have, make them love the product as well. Hmm. But that has to be a really good product then. Yeah. So you have to have great sales, but you ought to have a great product. So you obviously had exposure to relationships and communication. Um, you knew how to work hard because you'd been encouraged to do so. You had an entrepreneurial spirit in you. Your dad was an engineer, but you're a musician. How the hell did you get into um, building this uh, software package? So it's a series of partially ac accidental steps. So I, I, I decided as, as a musician, we were geeking around and we'd ran into people like, you know, Angus and Malcolm, ACDC and the Brewster brothers from, you know, uh, the Angels and... Dale Braithwaite, say Dale Braithwaite. No, I, I never ran into Dale Braithwaite. He didn't play guitar. Ah, okay. So I was I was very friend, good friends with the guitarists because I could play guitar and I could show them things on the guitar. But um, sooner or later, I figured out that it wasn't a very good profession to feed yourself and pay the rent. And, and I wanted to be a responsible person. So... I started a guitar repair business, which used my skills, but more so my mechanical skills, things my father had taught me. That became a very successful business. It actually moved into town, was next to a really famous uh, guitar store. I got lots of fantastic customers, including all those people I mentioned. And that business grew. But I realized as, as I grew that business that it was completely connected to my two hands, to, to my ability to play the guitar and to do physical things with the guitars, electrical and the physics of the guitar, which are quite complex. And as a guitarist, I can understand them better than most. So at the time, I was also starting to understand the beginnings of computing and electronics. And I just kind of taught myself enough. I bought a what back then was called a microcomputer, and I started just doing things. My brother was going through a accounting degree, and he was living with me, and I bought him a computer, but he never used it. But I played with it at res relentlessly. Games first, and then I tried to figure out how it worked. And I taught myself to program, and I taught myself to interface the computer to other things, and I could make lights flash and so forth. And eventually, I moved from, uh, I sold the guitar repair business, very profitably, and then I started up a, a lighting business, which built lighting equipment for entertainment. So it's the same industry still, but now I'm a major lighting manufacturer. As in light the stage up, for example. Yeah, all sorts of clever lighting and control systems for lighting, electronics for lighting. Uh, that business got quite big, we moved four times. It's on an industrial scale, when you're manufacturing things, it becomes quite hard because you've got to fund the equipment, you've got to fund the staff, you've got to buy the materials, you've got to manufacture, you've got to hold stock. I learned a lot. I also learned how not to go bankrupt because you, you sort of sail close to the edge, you look over the precipice and you realise I could be going badly here if I just if I don't do the right thing, it could be a problem. Ben Wright never raised capital uh, up until the time of the IPO. Uh, I merged that business with a very famous entertainment company called Jans, Jans Electronics, which did all the concert productions and did all of the, a lot of, uh, you know, 
nightclubs and theatres and all sorts of other things. And I became the R&D manager there. And as part of that, I had to build a computerized lighting control system. So I had to teach myself a lot. I taught myself electronics. I had some engineers to help me. Bear in mind, no degree. I just came into high school and started in a band. And then I had to teach myself to, to develop the software. And I spent probably a year intensely focusing on how to build this thing, got it done. And suddenly I discovered that I'd built all these fine-grained skills in software and in hardware and in computing generally. That company um, had an offer to sell part of its business to an English public company, which they sold. And I said, well, since you're selling, how about I sell my shares too? And I'm going to go and build a computer company. So that was the we're now on the third, that's the third business. So I go to the fourth business. I, saw, I built a computer distributor and it resold Unisys computers and Philips monitors and many other peripherals. And I learned a lot about computing and distribution, but I also learned that it's also very hard to scale a buy-sell business because you've got to have a lot of capital to manage the stock, to manage the debt as ledger. You've got to pay your suppliers on time. It's the same problem, staff, capital, growth. I sold that business in 90 in 89, just just before we had the recession we had to have, and started a consulting business. And I accidentally fell in with uh, two customers that were in the freight forwarding industry, which is effectively logistics. And I started writing little systems for them because they were trying to glue together these multiple small systems. It was very ugly sort of glue, but it was necessary because there was no comprehensive, complete system for them. So I started thinking, there's something missing from this industry. By 92, it was 89, by 92, I'd built enough of an idea that I started writing a comprehensive and complete front and back office system for internet, for freight forwarding. Now, this time I only had Australia in mind. My focus was what I knew and what I had seen from those customers. And it became quite successful. And by 94, we incorporated it separately and it became the original company which was WiseTech, but was originally called Eagle Developments International. And and did in that process, I mean, you, you bootstrapped it yourself with, the, with your own savings, and you also probably more importantly, you didn't need to raise capital because it was sort of profitable. In that it was um, whatever you were selling it for was had a margin relative to what it cost you, mm. and you obviously um, were in a position to fund whatever whatever you needed to fund. That probably that's the development period because you're not carrying stock. Well, the software companies have this interesting thing. You have a big sunk cost. Yeah. You have no cost uh, cost of goods. Yeah, yeah. So you don't have a cost, and you don't have to store it. You don't have a big factory. You don't have a big warehouse. Correct. But you've got to sell it. Correct. You, you've got to distribute it. You've got to you've got to have the ability for people to adopt it. There's no point in having the best software in the world if no one wants to use it. So correct. Where? How did you? How did you? Strategize. How are you going to get someone to adopt this thing that you built for yourself, by the way, or your own environment? I built it for customers that I had as as relationships Currently. with. Yeah, and yeah. I was basically saying, so if I build this, we can replace all those bits and pieces you're talking about with this system. And and I've, I then, at that time, also figured out that you could acquire other small competitors and amplify your growth by, by taking their customers onto the platform as well. So the very first... Acquisitions that WiseTech did were in 1994, 1996, and 1999. And they got us to about 80% of the Australian marketplace. There was an organic piece, very strong on sales, very good software, 
reasonably good sales, but salespeople. But the but the real key back then was the software was just different and better than anybody else's. So you, so you, so well that 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 works in terms of your organics. You know, yep. In other words, organic growth. Obviously, you got to train your people up to be able to get them to tell the story, and to be able to convince they've got to be good at you know let's call it storytelling. In, I don't mean in a uh, Hans Christian Andersen sense. I mean, you know, proper storytelling about what the software does, why okay. it's better than everybody else. Um, clearly, you've got to be able to deliver and you've got to make sure it's not, not full of bug, bugs and all that sort of stuff. But how important were the acquisitions for you? Because another way to grow is not just organically, but by via acquisitions. Right, so, right, yeah. And I guess you went and just took out whatever. You said, I'm going to buy you for this price. I'm going to take out what you currently got and I'm going to insert my, my system, my software. Is that, was that not, the, not quite as aggressively as that, but there's yeah. a smooth transition that you organise. So you do the data transfers, you make the path for the customer quite easy, and then you and then you basically have to shut down, put this old system in maintenance mode, and and propose that new software is much better, and you should go forward to it. And that was very successful. There, and that, that often that sort of sort of that people refer to as what is migrating yes. one system to another system or onto one one from one system to another system. What you're migrating is customers but really a lot of data and that as you said it could be that the way i described it earlier was a bit aggressive because if you stuff it up you're in big trouble relative to the customers but if you have uh, the talented people from that company that you acquired and you have the source base and you know where their data architecture is and you have a good understanding of the data architecture of yours you can build a, a kind of a tool to do that migration very effectively so we've we've always gone to automate things that other people have done manually. And uh, one of the interesting things, if you've understood any sort of complex ERP type system, one of the one of the difficulties is um, building a system that auto upgrades itself. So instead of having engineers, you know, connect to the system and load the files and m modify the database and everything, the very first system built in 94, because I'd been experienced with some software before, I saw all the bad problems, and so we built it. So it, we simply release a new version. The system would take that up electronically, apply it to itself, upgrade all the files, and start again. And that became incredibly useful because the industry that we're in had always going through, was always going through quite big transitions of requirements. So it, it, sometimes a, 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 I know, the tech industry absolutely enthralls me uh, because you've got all these people in there with these big brains sort of uh, making something sound very simple, which is actually usually fairly complex for most of us um, normal humans. And they tend to think things through. And I often wonder to myself, do they actually sort of draw up a, a big piece of architecture? Like do they physically map it all out or you know, on a computer perhaps, but like actually draw it out in terms of a plan? How does it work? Uh, my approach was usually data-driven design. So I'd, design, I'd look at the requirements for the customer. And some of this you do in your head because it's become second nature. But I'd we'd take the requirements for the customer, the industry more importantly, because it's really an industry software package. And you'd then map that into a data architecture. So the shape of the database, the way the tables and columns and rows are formed is fundamental to the design. And then you'd load the software on top of that to enable the database to match the human. There's a human interface required, but there's a database at the back end that's got to store things. And that connection between those two things was very important. We actually built, I built that on a, on a, on a computerized tool. 
which we used for many, many years. And actually, the second Jonathan software was a sort of a supercharged version of that early version. So we basically just took all the things we knew that we'd done right and all the things we knew we'd done wrong in, this is in 2002, and built the second generation of the software by basically cleaning out all the mistakes and building a clean, modern, uh, you know, SQL type database and then building the software on top of that. So when you, in terms of, I mean, I don't want to get uh, too technical, too, too technical, but I'm sort of getting there a little bit. But in terms of your um, um, stack of technologies, um, yeah. how do you go about the process of making choices and uh, and how everything gets stacked in? You know, they all get stacked on top of each other. Or is it, or are you, or is you just got one thing? You not you not using anyone else's stuff, and you just got your own. Oh system. no, you 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 do use uh, you know a. a Modern database and use a modern language. We've we've been through in in the core system. We've been through three different languages and and two different databases and many versions of the or modern database. You know, the bottom end is SQL based. Uh, the mid tier is all C sharp, and you know the the front end is you know, pretty modern technology too. But when you acquire a lot of companies, you also pick up a lot of other things that aren't necessarily yeah. the same as your piece, and so. Uh, this creates you know certain problems, and so you've got a very structured way of thinking about how you bring th things back to simple. Because ultimately, simplicity makes it easy to run a business. You've got to have a very complex solution, but it's got to be built as simply as possible. So, you do your organic growth, you make some acquisitions, you got your yep. product, yep, with lots of iterations as you go, and as you just said, as you acquire another a business. Um, you have to make alterations and changes, and there's um, legacy systems, etc. And then there's the process of transitioning into into your system um, over time and migration, as we talked about earlier. And you 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 did this for a number of years. Where was the point at which you said, and or your colleagues said, why don't we go raise some money in the public domain? And what was the purpose of it? Why did you decide to do that? Uh, well, the first part. Keep in mind that we, we were either a little bit better than break even or quite profitable right up until the second generation product and the need to internationalize the business. The what, second generation What period is that? What, what we're talking so about? Business was incorporated in 94. Yeah. In 2004, we released the second generation product. 10 years, yep. Okay. It's an interesting thing because every release has been 10 years. Right. Um, and at that time, I had enough uh, capital in the company and cash in the company to bringing a second version into existence was quite hard to do because it's a much bigger thing. We built it for a global market rather than an Australian marketplace. But I got to the end of uh, mid-95 and I realized that I couldn't internationalize the company without having some cash behind us. And so I brought in two um, private investors, Charles Gibbon and Mike Gregg, uh, still shareholders in the company. And they invested uh, privately uh, you know, a few million dollars each. So you did a private round? I did a private round, and and they became you know very impassioned shareholders and directors of the board, and I don't think there was any push at that stage to go public. It was really just let's make the company great, let's build it. It became at much higher growth during the global financial crisis. We had a fantastic business model that drove sales really really powerfully. As in nine, ten, eight, nine, ten. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning of 2008, I introduced a new model which we called on-demand uh, periodic licensing, which meant you paid nothing up front for the software. We gave you the entire stack. You could use everything. 
and then as you used it, we paid, paid we charged you for the things you used. Right. That's so we got rid of the old capital model where you charge this huge fee up front and then a maintenance fee every year. We charge nothing up front and a fee for the usage of the software. It sort of made it look like more a royalty business, which is people love that. Yeah, and, uh, and investors and ro- royalty businesses are much better for investors. No, investors love royalty Annuities, annuities. They call annuities, but it's sort of like that. Same deal um, because upfronts tend to get spent. Um, annuities sort of get a better valuation too. Yeah, absolutely. You mean because you know you you have terminal dates and you have all the sort of good discounts and depending on how well you're growing, you get really good multiples. So it's actually a very good way to value a business in terms of annuity. So, but if I could just go back to two thousand and I think four, five, uh, four, five. Four, four was when we released the software. Five is when we raised some capital. Right. So you, then that was a the five was a an, an IPO or just a, a private rise? Just a private rise. Right. So when did you IPO? Uh, April eleventh, two thousand and sixteen. Sixteen. Wow. So you um, did you do any do, did you do any additional rounds after the two thousand five? One year ride? before we did a pre IPO round with Fidelity and Smallco, which we raised thirty five million. Right. So maybe you just explain when you go to raise this money from these investors, and at that stage these we're talking about sophisticated or professional investors. What are they expecting to hear? Are they expecting you to hear them? You say, "Look, we're raising this money for a specific reason. We're not going underwater. We're going to go and do this." Is that the story? Well, don't forget, we were profitable, yep. and we were pretty high growth. Uh, in two thousand and fifteen, when we did the pre-IPO round, we were able to say, "We think that the company is going to be valued at this much on IPO, and we think we can give you a return guarantee." So we took the money on a guaranteed uh, float price. Right. So who, who makes the guarantee? The company does to the investors. The company does to the investors. It's called a, a, a return guarantee. Yeah, yeah, return guarantee. And, of course, that's sort of... Um, if, it, if it didn't work, I would I would have been more diluted than I was. As, yeah, As it yeah. worked out, we, we were almost spot on the, to, the, to the numbers. So so you go... To the decision then... To, so you've already decided you're going to do an IPO, but you need some money before you get to the IPO. Did you need the money, or didn't need the money? Uh, no, the money was helpful in that we we bought a number of in a number of countries. We, bear in mind, we raised the money in two thousand and five, and I used that money to buy the UK, the US business. Right, I had the CargoWise brand. Right, and that was the primary purpose of that money to globalize the business. I had I needed salespeople, I needed marketing, I needed global capability. integration, etc. But yes. yeah, but 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 that was the objective which you told these two private investors. Correct. And then in two thousand and fifteen, we told the, the pre IPO investors that we would be taking the company public. And we had a very, very strong understanding of why we were going public as well. It, we, we, what we, was that? We, we'd started giving options to the staff in 2005 when we brought the private investors in. Um, one of my uh, very, very good sh- uh, good uh, staff and shareholders reminded me the other day that he got shares in 2005 at, on a today's valuation of seven cents. Wow. So the, the company's worth you know 70 bucks a share now. So it's a fairly big return on investment. And I think uh, what we the, the the reason for listing a company, in my view, there is always three reasons. One is you need to give your staff a liquidity and valuation mechanism, an ability to sell at a price that's good value. Well, they need to be able to do that rather than have private sales, which yep. is very hard to manage. And then you need to be able to create public trust in the company, and a public listing does properly organised. You have a trustable company that the, the accounts are transparent, customers can rely upon you because you're public listed and so forth. And then you also have the ability to raise capital by using shares or use the shares as cash. 
yep. to buy further companies. Yep. So, so it gives you currency. Gives you, us currency. It gives us some currency. In other words, you want to go buy something instead of having to spend cash or you know, some, or some combination of thereof, you can actually go to say to the um, vendor, look, we want to buy your business, but we'll give you shares in our company. That's what we mean we by We might currency. give them a third shares, a third cash, and a third some sort of earnout. Yeah, earn Say. Yeah, so but but you create by listing you by being a listed on the stock exchange you actually create currency for yourselves to make correct. acquisitions. That and I think correct. that's really important. And I think a lot of people forget about that. That sort of overlook that. I mean, you could do it as a private company, but it's not as attractive. It's, it's you have this illiquidity yeah. discount if, in yeah. a private company, yeah. whereas in a public company, the market is the market. Yeah, it's it's, it's yes, liquidity is the most important thing. So what we're talking about here is the ASX sort of listing on the stock exchange gives you liquidity, particularly for your staff. Because, you know, because some staff might say, look, I don't know, it's great. I bought it, got them at seven cents an hour. Okay, but you need, need to build a kitchen or yeah, buy a house or yeah, well, I want to pay buy, for their kids' great, education, well, I whatever. I want to do something, you know, like, uh, and of course, you know, this is their reward. So you get liquidity for staff, you get liquidity for every shareholder for that matter. Um, then you can, and by virtue of that liquidity, then you can create currency because it's it's liquid liquid currency. So you can go make acquisitions. And uh, sometimes it's it's not because you don't want to spend cash. It's because you want them to be sort of buy into the deal. Yep. The, 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 the vendor. The vendor is part of it. Well, they want, I want them to feel ownership in the company. Yeah, so yeah. giving them shares is quite an important thing too. And some of that, often those shares are escrowed for a period of time as well. Yep. They're not able to sell them immediately. They Can have you to... ex explain that, please? So an escrow means that the shares are held effectively in a, in a form that can't be sold until the escrow uh, period passes. So that person is really quite tightly bound to the company. But regardless of those escrows, most of the people that have had them still retain the shares. In your case, yeah. yeah. Well, not in my case, in, in the case of many of the staff. Yep. Uh, the, the people that we brought in, um, in 2006 when we bought the, the company that had the Kagawise brand, Lutz Ostermeyer, who's still a very good friend, um, he had shares in the company. He's retained two-thirds of all of his shares that he had, in, even after this many years. And because he's... Just what he said. What else can I do with the money? I couldn't put it anywhere else that would give me a better return. Yeah. So then it comes back to how well the company's doing, and yes, then, yes. and then that's obviously got a lot to do with you and your team. Um, and I mean, it doesn't always work out that way for everybody, mind you. I mean, you you have had like an unbelievable run. Um, I would well, say not that, unbelievable. I, 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 would I say, say believable. I, but it's, well, it's believable because yeah. it's true. Yeah, it's true. But it's also constructed. It's not something that happened accidentally. Very strategic. You, you've been strategic about it. Has at any have at any has at any stage there been a situ a time when you go, oh my god, I wish I had never done the IPO. There's always no is the answer, but there are always things you go. That's the cost of having a public company. Those things, those pain points, are the things that you have to bear in order to have the greater good. For example, oh well, it's personal just, life. <laughs> uh, no, I think. Uh, the biggest thing that was problematic was we had a short attack in 2019. We were, we were basically very junior, young company with a very strong belief in the future, but we didn't understand that. The, you know, sometimes you can take advantage of those uh, early beginnings, and uh, and we got short attack. But short attack yeah, being your your stock was shorted. It was more than that. It was a very very nasty short report. In fact, 14 short reports. I remember reading about it. But so... so what, they, caught, they accuse you of all sorts of fraudulent things. Yeah, and of course... In order to suit their purpose. And indeed. They're, they're making money off, off, the, off the words. But the fact is that the company, because it was always profitable, we just kept on focusing. I, I, we largely decided to ignore the shorts 
and just keep building the company and keep focusing on being profitable and cash generative, eventually all the stuff that people can say about you passes away because uh, when you are very cash generative, it's the easiest thing to prove. Yeah. You, you can't you can't disbelieve cash balances and, and, and cash. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you had, did you say you had 14 short reports? Yeah, in so 12 months. By one mob or just by a lot of uh, it was One did five, but then a lot of the other shorts just copy them and they issue it in their own name, but they basically say the same thing. Yeah. Has it affected your personal life? I mean, do you, and do you think you operate it in any way differently as the top guy in a ASX-listed company as opposed to being in a more private environment? No, I think it was just the nature of the beast, and we learned a few things. I think you know, can say every day's a school day, so we learn we learn a lot along the way. And I think one of the ways of looking at this is that you learn where the defensive points need to be, and you need need to how you need to speak to the market and what sort of openness you need to have. But it was an unfortunate matter, but it taught me a lot about focusing on the important things and ignoring the noise. It was all noise in the end because there was nothing wrong with the company and we just needed to keep moving on our strategy and really focus on the mission. How important is it for someone like you and or your maybe head of investor relations, if you have one, to make sure that you talk to your larger shareholders in an, in an IPO situation or an enlisted situation? It was very important to communicate to the market, which means at, at times it means talking to all of your major shareholders. But also, I think one of the really good uh, ethoses that I have and the company has is that we don't let any, leave anybody behind. We communicate digitally very well. And so everything we give to our, uh, our um, half year and full year report at our annual general meeting is content led and reusable multiple times. And so almost everything that we've got we put into some form of content in fact the company has these mantras and there's a there's a wonderful credo on the website if people want to read it and there's mantras underneath that one of the mantras is lead with content that means leadership means you have to generate content to show where we're going and lead means go first with content so that allows us to scale the business massively bigger and better than you would if you were doing it narrative and you were having face-to-face -face meetings and talking a lot the content-led idea amplifies our ability to execute. I guess probably the, what you're sort of saying there is um, you're not so interested in having to abide by the continuous disclosure rules, which is something you have to do when you're a public company, particularly if you're ASX listed. By doing what you're doing, you actually do the mandatory stuff, the obligatory stuff, the stuff mm. you're legally obliged to, the regulatory stuff, but you do it even more so. So you, you, you actually make it deeper and wider in terms of the content. And it's not just, yes, that's true. First of all, you absolutely must comply with continuous disclosure. Secondly, you've got to do that in a sophisticated way. You can't just sort of treat it trivially. Uh, thirdly, those things are also beneficial for customers and, and investors to know. And staff need to know things as well. Now, what you tell staff is a little bit more detailed and, and not so much about continuous disclosure, but about the knowledge and and vision and strategy and tactics and execution components that you need for your staff to have so that they can own the growth of the company too. It's really important to take staff through through this process. And, and, and you've been talking sort of to me today, and I really appreciate your honesty and your, your frankness in this in this regard, but... What about Richard himself? Um, has your life changed? I mean, obviously, you know, you're a very wealthy guy. 
Um, you've been extraordinarily successful. Um, your business is well known around Australia and around the world for that matter. Um, you've, you're in a rising tide tech, that is. Um, but how's your life changed? Well, I think, funnily enough, I th first of all, I try to remain very grounded and, and you know, you've got to, you know, you eat one meal at a time and live in one house and drive one car and you, you touch, touch wood, you've got to, you've got to remain sane and focused on the things that matter. But I've always liked to solve problems. I've always liked to fix things. I've always liked to build something that's better. And WiseTech gives me that on a global scale. And, and the lots and lots of the people around me are like that as well. Engineers are like that. I mean, I, I do have actually a degree and um, I have a master's in management, uh, IT management, and I have a, a doctorate in technology because I've sort of pulled it along the way. But all those things happened because of WiseTech, because I needed to have the skills and the, generate the capabilities that we needed. You still playing your guitar? Absolutely. So if I can just, I have one question for you, one more question, and it's slightly off the topic, but I heard you live in a very unusual bit of real estate. Yeah. Can you explain that to me? So I grew up in Bexley, in a, in effectively in a- in I know where it is. The, I grew not far from there. Really? Wait, where Punch was that? Ball. Oh, well, there you go. I used to drive through Bexley to get to um, uh, Cronulla. Anyway, go on. Sorry, your story. So, so my grandfather and grandmother ran a function centre. Which you talked about earlier, which you worked at. I did, and I, I, at the age of 12, I was running the dishwashing machine, which was huge, and I was quite small at the age of 12. But I think they were really teaching me about work, the value of work and heart, and what to do with entrepreneurship and, and management. And I saw a lot of things, and I grew through that process, worked in the kitchen, worked behind the bar at the age of 14, probably illegally, serving alcohol, worked as a waiter, then I sold receptions, and I learned all of that. I also I went to Sydney Technical High School, which was about 300 meters from the front door of my father's factory. And I would walk outside the school and go to my father's factory every day after work, after after school, sorry. And he would teach me all sorts of stuff, engineering, electrical, you know, he's a good engineer as well. And my mother also had these wonderful communications and, and sales skills. And so I had this great environment of- Blessed. Picking, picking all these things up. I also, you know, played the guitar and read a lot of science fiction. So I had a very active mind. My mother fed that pretty strongly. But the, the property was the, the, the property where the, the function center was. And it had a few other houses on it. I lived in the back of the property in one of the houses. I started my first business, the guitar repair business, in one of the units. And I started my second business, which was the lighting business, in that property as well. So I was very attached to the property. I went to Bexley Primary School, Sydney Technical High, lived there f f until I was, I don't know, 34 or something. And when my grandfather passed, it was sold. And I bought it back in 2014, but I bought it back with the desire to make it into something beautiful again, because it had become dilapidated over the years. And one of the things I did was make the whole place off the grid by putting in a major battery installation and major solar and building a number of townhouses at the back and building a very large basement with a recording studio in it. So I've got a decent sized recording studio and a place to put all my guitars. So you, you, you sort of, you, you bought back the family farm effectively. I, did. I but bought you back the family farm. But turned into a tech hub. By the sound of it. So what have we got? We've got solar panels, uh, batteries, and- Yeah, it's uh, so a um, Tesla power pack, which is yep. 235 kilowatt. 235 kilowatt? Battery, so, yeah. so normally, uh, I, I just bought power one. Power pack's 13.5 wow. power. So that's so a lot of panels. Run, it runs the entire, the, the plot's about an acre. There's nine, right. nine dwellings on the plot, because I built six more. 
um, that's for friends and family. And my friend from, he was 17, I was 18, met in a, in a guitar store in Arncliffe and we've been friends ever since he looks after the grounds. My mother, who's just turned 90. She's in, there? She's a, she lives there in one of the units. And I've got my investment office there and I've got a couple of units for my kids and um, the, the, the main house is for me with the studio in it and so forth. But I, I built it to be off the grid. I, I Why? Why is that? So I think when you are going to do things like uh, environmental ESG, you have to understand it. You can't just sort of hand it to consultants. I, I, I'm One of my great things is I don't like doing things unless I understand them. I don't want to delegate to somebody and, and then figure out, oh, I don't really know what they're doing or why they're doing it. So I thought, in, this is in 2017 when we were doing the build, I thought I'm going to put solar on. I'm going to understand what it's like to be off the grid and what's like to be effectively carbon neutral. And so I had to scour around to find somebody that actually understood what the hell I was talking about because most of the solar companies went, no, no, you can't do that. That's impossible. But I found a commercial company that did it, Smart Commercial Solar. They've done a great job. We've got Now we've got something like 160 kilowatts on the roofs and the, the battery will run the entire place for 99% of the year. And we output to the grid about 40 megawatts a year and we use internally about 60 megawatts a year. Wow, so you're putting back... We're, we're actually carbon negative. Yep, yep. And that gave me a really good understanding of what to do with WiseTech because I took that idea and said, well, we can actually amplify that and get WiseTech to a much better situation. You need energy reliability in today's world because the, the grid is becoming more and more fragile. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer this, like security of energy is a big deal. Absolutely. At, 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 our, at our individual levels and it's up to us to do it. Well, think about a technology company that requires the energy to keep its customers alive. Yeah. You, you, don't, you can't go offline. You yeah, totally. have to have energy reliability. So you can't just depend upon the, the, the grid to do it. You've got to have a backup plan and a backup plan of the backup. Your backup plan probably is the grid. So in other words, something goes wrong with the solar or, or the or the batteries, then you can actually probably tap into the grid and it, just keep it, it running. It, it's never happened. but it, No, yeah, I get it. But, but, like, it, but, uh, but it could fall back to the grid, yes. It's still connected to the grid. Yeah, yeah. It's still output to the well, grid. Obviously, but, you're pushing back into the grid anyway. But you strike me as a curious person. Very curious. Then takes a curiosity to actually learning about a topic, strategically though, like hmm. absolutely learning about the to topic, and then obviously you got to execute. How important is curiosity to you in terms of what you would attribute to you as your success? I think being curious and wanting to understand why things are working a certain way is, is enormously powerful and really a fundamental driver of knowledge. If you're curious and you care to push yourself, you'll learn things. I also have this other characteristic, which I'm gonna tell you about, which I think is, I've tried to analyze my own personality by like introspection and thinking Self-reflection, yeah. Self-reflection. Uh, I have this th concept called a healthy disrespect for the status quo. That means I see things and I go, that isn't really very good. We can do better than that. Surely that's a, there's a better way than doing that that way. And so this has infected all of the thinking in the business, including much of the automation we do, which improves things, much of the way we build software. I did my thesis, my management thesis, on agile software development. It's been hugely powerful to drive the company. We've constantly iterated and improved that design. And I challenge people. I, I ask tough questions and I propose ideas why don't we do it this way what about that you know and that that way of talking to engineers is very powerful because engineers really like the idea of having a challenge to solve that's what their whole life is engineers yeah. like to fix things like yeah. to build things i have had some experience with engineers one of the things 
I notice is that they're obviously very logical people and mathematically inclined, but often they don't have curiosity, but they, if you give them a task, they'll resolve it. How do you, as the founder and CEO of the business, how do you impart your curiosity to everybody? Uh, there's a number of layers to the answer to that. The first is we actually have an academy called the WiseTech Academy, which has lots of education on the industry that we serve, but also on the WiseTech way and how WiseTech operates and training and technical skills for staff. We also have these the credo that I mentioned before and a set of mantras. Another mantra is slower today, faster forever, meaning think about it, do it right. Don't rush it. Don't have to fix it later because you didn't do it well enough. Another good one is anyone can talk to anyone at any time for any reason. That's a very powerful one because it keeps the organization quite, organization quite flat, but it also lets people spread ideas around and, and challenge ideas and say, I thought I saw what you were doing there, but what about doing it this way? How about fixing that? And you've got to give people the ability to not feel threatened by proposing an alternative idea or challenging an idea as not being completely correct. And that's a powerful cultural thing as well. Absolutely. Your culture that you're building in that regard, that, that is not only powerful, but that's really cool because tech companies got to be cool, by the way. But it is really cool because people feel, I hate the word, but it's tr- it's a good word on, on this circumstance, empowered. They have mm. the right to say something and not feel stupid and, and be heard at the same time. So there's two things. We actually say enable and empower because enable means you've got the skills to do it. Empowered means you have the right, right to do it. Yeah, and, and those things are very important as well. That's extraordinarily powerful. I want to thank you for your honesty and your you know, your frankness um, and your insights, showing us what actually goes on in your head, which is uh, a rare thing for people to get to see. I, I'm actually quite surprised, to be frank with you, that you are so down to earth too for someone and you're still living in you know the old, uh, your grandparents' business back out there at Bexley. You haven't sort of got tickets on yourself, remain grounded, Yet you could be, uh, you know, if you wanted to be, you could be some smart-ass tech head and sort of run around driving Ferrari or something like that and sort of carrying on. That is pretty cool. Thank you. Well, I, look, I appreciate it. And, and, and frankly, I think the only way that you can really live a proper life is to be pretty down to earth. Because if you get too far up, you stop seeing the, the world the way it really is. Absolutely. Really nice to meet you. Thank you. Lovely to speak to you too. Going Public is a collaboration between Mark Burris and Steak. Find out more on hellostake.com. Any information shared is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.